Today we're going to look at the coming of a tender king, uh, continuing on in Isaiah and what Isaiah teaches us about Advent, how it points us to the themes of Advent. Um, I'm a Seinfeld fan. I don't know how many of you are besides me and Pastor Jonathan. Um, But of course, this time of year, the famous Seinfeld episode is the one where they introduced Festivus, um, which is Festivus for the rest of us. Um, the holiday that George's dad, Frank, had started celebrating because he was fed up with all the commercialism and materialism of Christmas. Um, but one of the ways that they celebrated Festivus was the airing of grievances. And so if you haven't seen the episode, there's the, the part where they all get together around the table and it comes time for the airing of grievances. And Frank Costanza yells as he always yelled, I got a lot of problems with you people and now you're going to hear about it. Uh, and I fear that too often... This is how we think of Jesus' second coming. Uh, that even as we, the way that we talk about the book of Revelation, the way that we talk about uh, the coming of our king, uh, that so many of us have this impression that Jesus is really coming back because he's got a lot of problems with us, and now we're going to hear about us. That maybe Jesus might have come as this meek and mild baby the first time, but the next time he's coming back to let us all know how angry we've made him. But passages like this one confront that misconception. Uh, This passage presents us, confronts us with a God who does not act the way that we expect him to act. That does not respond to our sin and our suffering and our struggle the way that we so often to the sin, the suffering, the struggle in ourselves and in the people around us. Uh, Isaiah 39 ends with a word of judgment by means of a prophecy that Judah would go into exile at the hands of Babylonian. And if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 40, if you just back up a few verses to the end of Isaiah 39 and verses 5 through 7, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah prophesied complete and utter destruction. Nothing shall be left. And yet Hezekiah seems completely unfazed. The chapter ends with Hezekiah saying to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah was content that he would be secure, even if it meant his children would suffer. But of course, the people who would be reading Isaiah's prophecy would not be as fortunate as Hezekiah to avoid the judgment of exile. And so as we continue on from chapter 39 into, verse, into chapter 40, and remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original. There are no uh, headings in the original text. The, the original readers would have flowed right from chapter 39 into chapter 40. We might expect God to start detailing judgment. We might expect to read of judgment, of punishment, of consequence, of wrath. And yet what we find in Isaiah chapter 40 is not a word of condemnation, but a word of comfort. Verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The Old Testament scholar J. Alec Motier says it is remarkable 
that the word of doom and the word of comfort lie side by side. No sooner is just judgment pronounced than an equally just comfort is heralded. Indeed, while one voice speaks the word of doom, the plural imperatives of 40 verse 1 summon a company of comforters out of which three voices are heard speaking, so that the comfort is more abundant than the condemnation. And not only so, but while judgment comes on one sinful nation, the consolation, as we shall see, spreads out to embrace the whole world. What we see in Isaiah chapter 40 is what I've heard Pastor Jonathan say so often recently, that when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so we're going to look at, at three, you have three things on your, on your uh, outline there, um, and they really flow together, so I, I may not hold exactly to them. But this contrast of what the people deserve and what the people receive flows throughout this entire passage. And so that first thing that we see is the depths of our need. God's initial words in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, are not spoken to Job. They are not spoken to the innocent sufferer who has done nothing to warrant his suffering. They are spoken to a people who had rebelled and sinned and gone astray and chased after other gods. To set it in our Advent context leading up to Christmas, they are spoken to people who, despite all our best intentions, have turned to faulty and failing and fleshly means of comforting ourselves because of all the pressures at work, all the stresses of our family gatherings, and the anxieties of credit card bills coming due, only to find that our ways of comforting ourselves actually provide very little comfort. God does not speak these words of comfort at Judah's best or at our best moments. He speaks them at our worst. He speaks them in the midst of our sin and our struggle. And that God says, cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Notice that God does not deny or minimize their rebellion and sin. He doesn't say forget about it. He doesn't say it's not that big a deal. He names it what it is. Warfare, iniquity, sin. He accounts for all of it, and yet he insists that it is forgiven. And again, remember who he's speaking to, a people in exile. People who had once boasted of the land, the city, and the temple, and all the promises wrapped up therein, only to lose the land, the city, and the temple because of their sin. And yet a people who are now comforted with the fact that their sin could not void and had not voided the promises of God, regardless of what the consequences of their sin had been. Nothing is left. All might feel lost. And yet God assures them that all is not lost. The line about them receiving double from the Lord's hand for all their sins might sound strange to our ears, but I like how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. And he paraphrases uh, Isaiah 40, verse 2, as speak softly and tenderly to Jerusalem, but also make it very clear that she has served her sentence, that her sin is taken care of, forgiven. She's been punished enough and more than enough, and now it's over 
and done with. In other words, God looks at his people suffering the consequence of their sin, suffering the punishment that that sin so richly deserved. And instead of rejoicing in the justice of it, he is moved to compassion by it. And having received a double portion of what they did deserve, he tells them that they would now receive a double portion of what they did not deserve. As one commentator put it, Yahweh replies to all her sins, not with the grocer's scale and weights, but with a double pardon, the pardon of grace. And, he's, and so he speaks tenderly of comfort, assuring his people that their punishment is now over and their sins are forgiven. These are words of loyal, faithful love spoken to the disloyal and disobedient. These are the words of the father to his prodigal son as he replaces his dirty and torn clothes with his finest robes. Or as one biblical scholar put it, this is the gospel for the wounded, torn, and tempted. When we talk about seeing our need, we too often limit it to our spiritual need, the need resulting from our sinfulness. We think that our need is great because we are sinners and that it, there's truth to that. But our need is also great because we are creatures. We are limited. We are weak. We are wounded, torn, and tempted. So God says in verses 6 to 8, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God contrasts the temporality and transience of human beings with his own permanence. We are here today and gone tomorrow. No more permanent than the flowers of the field which fade away. As Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, for all our anxiety and our desire for control, we cannot add a single hour to our lives. None of us have as much power and control even over our own lives as we think we do. And our sin is a blatant and obvious reminder of that. We like to convince ourselves that we're good enough, strong enough, faithful enough to resist temptation. But so often we find ourselves so easily succumbing to it over and over again. And I think we often think that God must tire of our repeated failings. And working with the men in the Colony of Mercy, I often um, point out that the way we view God oftentimes is of that judge who looks at us, points his finger on our face after he's pardoned us and says, I better not see you in my courtroom again. And then we end up in his courtroom again, time and time again. But again, we need to see that it is precisely amid our repeated failings that God tenderly speaks comfort. And we see this in the life of Jesus too. One of my favorite passages comes at Matthew 9, uh, at the end of Matthew 9, in verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew Isaiah 53 better than we do. He knew that we are like, we are like sheep without a shepherd because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
And yet Jesus has compassion because he sees that we are harassed and helpless. What Jesus understood, but we so often forget, is that sin is not just something we willingly participate in, a mere moral choice. It is also an invading force that holds us captive. And these verses, therefore, not only point out the temporality and transience of God's people, but also of the Babylonians who would come and conquer them. This is a word of comfort that the Babylonians, too, are like grass that withers and flowers that fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. The comfort that God speaks to his people at their greatest hour of need when all feels lost, when nothing is known but defeat. It is, that, is that the, it is the word of God and nothing else that speaks the final word about us. Nothing, not the sin that holds us captive, not the sin that we all too willingly indulge in, not the world systems that stand opposed to God and his people. Nothing else gets the final word. God gets the final word. It is his word that stands forever. And so this word of comfort that he speaks is that nothing that the people had done had stopped them from being God's people. Just like nothing that the prodigal son had done had stopped him from being the father's son. Because what God reveals to Isaiah is the same thing he reveals in Genesis and all the way throughout Scripture. That our failure to believe in the promises of God does not negate those promises. Because the promises of God are far greater than our ability to believe in them. Paul makes this very clear throughout the, the book of Romans. He closes Romans chapter 8 by saying, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes on to say in Romans 9 verse 16, that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in chapter 11, verse 29 of Romans, he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Are irrevocable. There is nothing that can change God's mind. Not our sin, not our struggle, not our suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in an Advent sermon in, uh, that he preached in December of 1932. Uh, and this is a little lengthy. I haven't figured out um, time-wise and stuff how to get slides over to them to put it up. Um, but Bonhoeffer, in his sermon, preached, when we are disturbed by the chaos in our own personal life, when we are not ready to face it, when again and again every security fails us and there is no firm ground under our feet, when our life hangs between good intentions and shame, when it becomes inevitably clear that we are weak, when some unmanageable fate comes over us, a great sorrow or a great passion, and we are horrified at the inevitable working out of this fate, when we can see only how faithless and hopeless we are caught in our errors, or when friendships are finally broken, when with the best will in the world we cannot find reconciliation with the other, in short, when we take seriously the whole human chaos in which we are stuck, then it all comes over us and we say to God, Lord, I can bear no more. 
I can't take anymore. No, I don't want anymore. I am too deep in the mire. God, don't speak anymore to me, for I will not hear from you. God, we have nothing more to do with each other. And then it happens that we want to hear something new, and at that moment we hear afresh peace, courage. Courage which God gives is like a mother taking hold of her child who is out of control with so many faults and failures, who is now very unhappy and begins to cry. She takes his hand and gives him a new chance. Now let's try that once more. Courage, courage. So God speaks to us when we are disgusted with ourselves. This is the word of comfort that God speaks. I loved what Alan prayed uh, during the lighting of the Advent calendar because there is so much cultural pressure for this to be the most wonderful time of the year. I think just the reality of life continually reminds us that so often it's not. That's what I love about Advent. It's a season for us to reckon with the reality of what we're living in, the suffering that we've experienced, the sorrow, the sorrows that we've walked through throughout the course of the year, the sin and the struggle that is still so, so present in our lives. And God meets us in that with the unexpected good news that Isaiah brings to the wounded, the torn, and the tempted. That our hope does not lie in our own ability to obey, our own ability to free ourselves from our captor. Our hope lies in the fact that our king is coming to set us free and that he meets us with tenderness. And so Isaiah confronts us not only with the depths of our own need as sinners, as creatures, but also with the, the tenderness of our king who is coming. Verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 40 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Uh, Isaiah had talked about a highway being made back in Isaiah 35, but at that point it was a highway being prepared for the people. This is now a highway prepared for God. The imagery is that nothing will stop the Lord's return. That God has set his heart on his people, and nothing will stop his coming for them. There is no obstacle that will hinder him. There is no complication that will delay his arrival. It's very much what came to mind as I was pouring over this passage was the, the bridge to reckless love. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. That is the imagery that Isaiah uses of a relentless God pursuing his people. And the mountains and the valleys that Isaiah is speaking of are those that are present in our lives. He, God uses similar imagery in Malachi that makes it clear. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, 
then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The way that, that God makes his path clear is by refining his people. It is by turning their hearts back to him. Matthew quotes Isaiah 40 about John the Baptist and makes the same point in Matthew 3. He says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The way that the way of the Lord is prepared, the way his paths are made straight, is that God works repentance out in his people. He refines his people. God meets us with tenderness in our sin, but he is not content to leave us there. He meets us with tenderness in our sin, but he is not content to meet us there. The work of God in our lives is one of a refining fire, purifying us, removing all that within us that is contrary to his nature, his purpose, and his will, and leaving all that is left that we may be conformed to his image. God's way is prepared in the hearts of his people as he sets us free from our captivity so that we might be restored to his kingdom to live under his rule. 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul is talking about what happens at the cross. Uh, verse 15, he says, And Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is how his way is prepared. It is transferring us from the kingdom of his enemy to the kingdom of the son whom he loved. Again, it is meeting us in the depths of our need, the depths of our sin, and refusing to leave us there. And there's Exodus language all over this passage. The, the mention of wilderness is one example of it. Uh, just as God once crossed the wilderness from Israel to Egypt in pursuit of his people and then led, him back, led them back through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, so he says in Isaiah 40 that he will once again cross the wilderness, this time to Babylon, in pursuit of his people in order to lead them back. And brothers and sisters, he still does the same for you today. He will relentlessly pursue you into your place of slavery, that he might lead you through the wilderness and into the promised land. And it says in verse 5, Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Moitier notes that the glory of the Lord means the Lord in all his glory not necessarily with awesome manifestations, but in the fullness of his personal presence. This is another promise of Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we see the same idea in the Exodus when the glory of the Lord is revealed to Moses. This is a point my brother Jim makes often to the men in the colony. In Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When we think of the glory of the Lord, we often think only of his holiness and his wrath. That's not how God reveals himself. God's glory is his goodness, his grace, his mercy. Not at the expense of his holiness and wrath, but in accordance with them. Because we often think of God's mercy and his wrath as being at odds, but in reality they work in tandem, and we see that here in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, who I know Pastor Jonathan mentioned her book on Advent uh, a couple weeks back, uh, but she has another book on the crucifixion. And in that book, she says, the wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. Where is the outrage? It is God's own. It is the wrath of God against all that stands against his redemptive purpose. It is not an emotion. It is God's righteous activity in setting right what is wrong. It is God's intervention on behalf of those who cannot help themselves. And that is the wrath that we see in this passage. It is God intervening on behalf of us who cannot help ourselves. Verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 40 says, See, the Lord comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. God uses uh, the analogy of his arm twice in this passage. In, in verse 10, his arm is strong to defeat the foes of his people. And in verse 11, his arm is gentle to comfort and lead his sheep. As one commentator puts it, the creator breaks into his world, both to break the power of evil with his strong arm and like a shepherd to gather up the broken in his gentle arms. God's arm is tender in comforting his people, but powerful in defeating the enemies of his people. We were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But like David before him, Jesus comes as both our king and our shepherd. He comes to defend us against our enemy just as David defended the sheep against all the wild animals in the field. And yet he is also a shepherd caring for us just as David cared for the sheep. The commentator says that God will tend his flock in the sense of meeting all their needs. With his sheep scattered in exile, he will gather them. With his sheep wounded and weak, he will carry them in his chest. He will lead the young ones as they go. Their God, who will come as king, will be tender, shepherding his flock. Thus, when verses 10 and 11 are read together, Zion's gospel is that God is coming as king, both in saving power and in tender care. This is the good news 
of Advent. This is the good news that we meet in the celebration of Christmas when Jesus comes his first time, and it's the good news that we look forward to now awaiting his second coming, that he is coming both in saving power and in tender care. And then finally, we not only encounter our need and our king, but we also encounter the lostness of our world. What Isaiah 40 and then bleeding into chapter 52, verses 7 and 10 make clear is that God's people are not just recipients of his mercy, they are also messengers of it. We get a glimpse of this in verse 9. It says, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And then in chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Here, God not only comforts his people, but then he sends them out as messengers. And there is so much here that we need to see because I think we, when we kind of think of bringing the good news to people, um, so often we project onto them, again, the, the thing that I think we fear for ourselves, that God, that God is angry with us, that he's got a lot of problems with us, and now we're going to hear about it. Uh, and the good news that we offer to people is not really all that good. And then we wonder why people reject it. And there's two main points that I want to draw out from this commissioning of the people. And the first is what our message is. Our message is that God is coming as king both in saving power and in tender care. That is the message that we carry, that God is coming as king both in saving power and in tender care. I've often tended to think of, of the gospel not as invitation but proclamation. We are declaring what is true. And so the first main point is that the good news is about what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. And not about what we have done, what we are doing, and what we must not do. And we often get that wrong. We often get that wrong. We often preach the gospel of people in a way that communicates that it's all about what they've done wrong and what they're doing wrong and all the things that God doesn't want them to do anymore. And of course, those are implications of the gospel. But the gospel is about what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. The gospel is that our God is coming as king, both in saving power and in tender care. He is coming both to set us free from our captive and to bind up our wounds. In Fleming Rutledge's book on Advent, she says, if there is one foundational truth that I have learned from apocalyptic, apocalyptic theology, it is this, God is the subject of the verb. 
God doesn't need us to help him make his dream come true. God is on the march far ahead of us, bringing his purposes to pass. And if we don't run to catch up with him, he will commandeer someone else. If God is not the acting agent, the subject of the sentences in the sermon, then it's not the gospel. We are participants in what God is already doing, but this is by grace alone. We should always beware of sermons that sound as if God is standing back waiting for us before anything can be accomplished. Brothers and sisters, God is the subject of the verb. When we celebrate Advent, when we come to Christmas and celebrate his first coming, as we await for his second coming, it is always about what he has done, is doing, and will yet do. It is always that he is before. That is what what God is doing in chapter 40 and chapter 52 of Isaiah. He is inviting his people to proclaim what is already taking place. He is inviting them to enter into the work that he is already doing. And so first, the good news is about what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. And secondly, it is good news. It is good news. When people hear the gospel from us, when they see the gospel at work in our lives, it should come off as good news. That's what the angels proclaim to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. They say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The coming of Jesus is good news for all the people. But it will not be good news for all the people if it is not good news for us. If we carry the wrong perception of God, that he is not meeting us with tenderness but with wrath, that he is not active but is waiting for us to get our act together, then we will put that on other people. G. Campbell Morgan, who was um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' predecessor, uh, said that all the aggressive force of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is to be directed against sin and none of it against the men who are in the grip of sin. Uh, And that that really is just a way of saying that we are to bring to people what we ourselves have experienced. and, And what we should experience as the Spirit works in our lives is what Isaiah 40 is bringing out. That God himself directs his wrath against our sin and not against us. If you are in Christ, if you have submitted yourself to his rule, if you have by faith been grafted in to Christ, then all of his wrath is poured out on the things in your life that are against his redemptive purposes, and none of it is poured out against you. God is for you and against everything that hinders his redemptive purposes for you. It is good news. We are awaiting a king, not who is coming to tell us everything that we've done wrong, but who is coming in power to set us free from our captor and coming with tenderness to bind up our wounds. And it is this that transforms us. Paul says in Romans 2 that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
And this is the kindness of God, that he is for us and against everything that stands against his redemptive purposes for us. My favorite Christmas hymn is actually an Advent hymn. Uh, it's Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, and I love, the, the, I love both verses, but the first verse, I'll close with this. It says, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That is the message of Isaiah 40. We are waiting for the long-expected Jesus, and he was born to set us free, to set us free from our fears and our sins, to bring us rest. He's our strength and our comfort. He's our hope, and he is our joy. He is our joy. We can rejoice today because our king is coming in power and in tenderness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I'm sure so many of us carry these faulty views of you. Lord, views of you that you are angry, that you are disappointed, or that you are coming because you've got a lot of problems with us and now we're going to hear about it. So Lord, thank you for your word which confronts us, which reveals to us who you are, that you are a king who is for us, that you are coming in power to set us free from all of the sin that we've become entangled with, that we've willingly entered into and that now holds us captive. But Lord, that you are also a king who is coming in tenderness to bind up our wounds. Lord, help us to experience your tenderness today, this Advent season, this Christmas. Lord, and, and let that tenderness change us. Lord, that as we experience you as safe, as tender, that we would stop our projections of strength, our delusions that we are good enough or strong enough or faithful enough to save ourselves. Lord, but that you would help us to see our complete and utter need. Lord, that we would expose that to you in your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. And Lord, that, that your kindness would lead us to repentance. Lord, make your path straight in our lives first. Lord, I'm sure that even today, many of us can probably think of things that we have done or said or thought this week that we need to repent of. And so, Lord, lead us to repentance. Lord, help us to find you in our sin and then to follow you out of it. Lord, raise up the valleys in our lives. Level the mountains in our lives. And Lord, as you do that work in us, may it overflow onto those around us. Lord, that as we proclaim the gospel to our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers, that it would not just be telling them how angry you are, Lord, but that it would be about telling them how tender you are. That Lord, in a culture that so beats us up for every mistake, that your church in general and this church specifically would be a safe place where people can 
can struggle and suffer and be met with your grace and mercy. And Lord, that as we are met with that, that we would repent and move from it. Lord, we thank you for your table, which we are about to celebrate, for the reminder of what it cost, for the reminder of what you were willing to give for our good. Lord, for the reminder that it is not for the well that you came for, but for the sick and the hurting. Lord, so for all of us who today are wounded and torn and tempted, may we be encountered by your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.